So good to see each of you. You know, we, we love uh, stories of victory. Right? We love uh, the high points of life. We love to celebrate triumph. But as we know, real life is not one big celebration. No real life has peaks and valleys. Um, it has high points and it has low points. You know, and one of, the, one of the great dangers of a fast-paced American culture that idolizes winning and success, that seeks to create a winning culture, you know, that has songs uh, with lyrics that say, all I do is win, <laughs> it creates a pretty significant problem, right? And I think the Enneagram 3s out there, you may get this, you know, because when we get on the rat race of striving for success in winning, which let me say is... Uh, not a bad thing. Winning's not a bad thing. Hard work and excellence and doing our best in all things is pleasing to the Lord. It's an act of worship. However, when we only celebrate success and wins and then try to just kind of hurry past our struggles, we miss an incredible opportunity uh, for the Lord to meet us and to grow us and to shape us. Uh, to find, as I mentioned last week from the great Charles Spurgeon, to find the sweet fruit that comes from a thorny tree. You know, I was reminded recently uh, by a friend uh, of Ecclesiastes 3, which says, you can follow along with me, it says, for everything there is a season, for a time, uh, for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. In our new series uh, titled, The God Who Restores, we see all sides of this spectrum, we see the hard times and we see the good times. We see the highs and the lows. You know, in the past two weeks, uh, we've seen, uh, we've sat in psalms of lament. You know, in this week and next week, we're going to see a mixture of lament with, all, with also hopeful expectation. In the last three psalms of our series uh, are, great, are psalms of just great thanksgiving that flow out of this hopeful expectation that emphasize the great harvest that comes after the drought. But what we see throughout all of these psalms, in every single one of them, we see the goodness of God. And no matter what happens in our life, in all seasons of life, our God, he does not change. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. You know, our God that sees all that is happening in our world, our God, our, our God that knows the hearts and minds of those who stormed Capitol Hill this past week, showing the evil and sin in our world, showing the world clear as day that our world is broken and that it needs to be restored. Uh, and what we must see and what we must remind ourselves, and honestly what we'll see today, is that our, our God is still good and faithful. Even in the wildernesses of life, even when it seems like darkness surrounds us, our God is faithful in the deserts, and he's also faithful in the green pastures that produce a great harvest. And the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible meets us right where we are. He meets us in our times of joy. He meets us in our times of grief. God doesn't rush us through or scurry past us. No, he sits with us in silence and uh, our weeping, and he also dances with us in joy. And so no matter where we are, he meets us right where we are. This is just what God does. In all seasons, uh, he gives us hope and he shows us incredible mercy. And, and it's not because of our circumstances or surrounding. Uh, it's, it's because God is our hope. You know, our, our, God is, uh, our God is a God who restores all things. It may not look like how we want it to look or to be on our timeline, but it always is in God's perfect plan. Because our God who restores 
uh, and heals the brokenhearted, it doesn't just heal the broken, but gives them a purpose and a vision and releases them for his global mission, to flourish in his global mission. And so today in Psalm 63, you know, we're going to see just that. We're going to see a Psalm of David that has a backdrop of hardship and turmoil and lament while also filled with hopeful expectation. This is a Psalm that is full of confidence in the the Lord uh, during uncertain times. And so if you're here for the first time, or maybe you're with us online today, let me just go ahead and say we're so glad that you're here with us. Um, in fact, uh, we have food for you after the service if you're here uh, with us in person. You know, we, we, we'd love for you to stay with us and hang out, um, just kind of fellowship with us. But one of the things that I hope that you'll see today along with us is that we're not just a church with a zeal and a passion for God's mission, but we're also a church that realizes it's okay to hurt and lament and be broken. In fact, this is part of God's mission, which is to heal the brokenhearted. You know, when I think about our church, and one of, the heart, one of the prayers I have for our church um, is that we would be zealous. We'd be like a zealous wartime battleship that comes fully equipped with the space and the time to provide an infirmary for the weary. And so that said, we're gonna, let's go ahead and dive into Psalm 63. The heading of Psalm 63, it states, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And in verse 1, it says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. You know, something that I think would be helpful to understand, uh, to better understand, is kind of understand the, the story that surrounds this psalm, the backstory. You know, the heading of this psalm, it says, When he was in the wilderness of Judah... Um, You know, verse 1 makes it clear that David is experiencing hardship and difficulty. And then verse 9 draws out that the people are seeking to destroy his life. And when when we look at David's life, there are two instances, you know, when he was in the wilderness. We see kind of throughout the story of David in the Old Testament. You know, there are two instances uh, when he was a refugee on the run. Uh, when people were chasing after him. The first was when, uh, was in, is in 1 Samuel 23, when David was fleeing from King Saul. And the second instance was uh, when he was fleeing from his son Absalom uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Um, and, and just to be clear with you, uh, scholars and commentaries differ in which one they think is referring to. Um, for us reading it, I think it's okay not to be fully convinced in this. Um, although, you know, you'll see that I, I think it, it seems to be more evident in one than the other. But, you know, if I had to choose, I would make the argument that it's the second one. Because the very end of this psalm, in verse 11, he references himself as a king. And so, you know, I would say it seems like it was when he was fleeing from his son Absalom because he was a king during that time. 
when, you know, as, as he references himself as a, as a king, you know, I'd encourage you to go and read all the chapters that surround this time with Absalom. You know, but just as a quick overview, kind of give you the backstory. You know, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, when David was king, he was leading armies and experiencing great success. You know, David had his incidents with uh, his scandal with Bathsheba. He messed up. And then after that, he had a, a son with Bathsheba who later went on to be King Solomon. But David, he also had another son named Absalom. And y'all, when you re- read these chapters in 2 Samuel, you realize that David's family is just one big old mess, okay? Um, it's not pretty. Uh, it's a scandalous, evil mess. You know, one of David's other sons, Amon, uh, he actually terribly violated his sister. He, in fact, he raped her. You know, in Absalom's anger with what was done to Tamar, he later had his servants murder Amon, and David and the whole family in terrible agony, like they were just, uh, they were, they were, they were just grieving over the entire situation, angry over it, just having all these things going, surrounding it. And over a matter of time, you know, Absalom, you know, he started to gain influence among the people of Israel. The Bible calls um, in 2 Samuel 15 what Absalom was doing a conspiracy. Because he was proclaiming himself as a king uh, when David was actually the king, but he was, he was trying to usurp the king. And David gets word of this news uh, and then begins to flee with all of his people because of the amount of influence that Absalom was having. Uh, and, and so if you're completely lost at this point, that's okay, just know um, that David was in trouble and he was running for his life. In fact, he was running from his son. He was running away from his son. And because of this, in 2 Samuel 15, 23, it says, all the, land wept, all the land wept aloud as the people passed by. And then it says, and the people passed towards the wilderness. And then later it says in verse 30 of 2 Samuel 15, that David and everybody with him went up the mountain weeping. They were weeping. He was weeping with his head cover, covered and everybody else with him, they were also weeping. All, it says they were weeping in great anguish, but yet on top of that mountain, at the summit of the mountain, it says that God was worshipped. And as I said, we don't really know for sure if this is the backdrop of Psalm 63, but what we do see in this psalm is that there is something of a wilderness experience where they are weeping, yet worshipping the Lord in their tears with a hopeful expectation. So that said, what we'll see today as our main idea is that the Lord satisfies in the wilderness. You know, this terminology of the wilderness, it's all over the Bible. You know, we we first see it with Moses and Israel in the book of Exodus. We see it uh, in David's life. We see it with many of the prophets. And we also see it with Jesus, you know, as he begins his ministry. Uh, And in most instances in these wilderness journeys, we see one of of two things, right, throughout, throughout the Bible. There's either a hardness of heart or a deeper intimacy with God kind of finding a deep satisfaction in the Lord, or or possibly maybe even both. But what we see David cry out in Psalm 63 is a plea towards finding this deep satisfaction in the Lord. Not, Not just to know about it, but to actually experience it. In a time when possibly it would be easy for him to have his heart hardened because of everything that surrounds him, But no, David puts his stake in the ground and cries out in Psalm 63 out of the wilderness with great hope and with a great eager expectation. And so that said, you know, we're going to look through this psalm. We're going to walk back through this psalm uh, in three turns, kind of looking as David sees it. Number one, we're going to see thirsting in the wilderness. Number two, we'll see worship in the wilderness. And number three, we'll see deliverance out of the wilderness. 
You know, whenever I, whenever I think of the wilderness, um, my first thought is always Bear Grylls, okay? Uh, I, I binge-watched that dude before binge-watching was even a thing, I think. Um, you know, he was born to survive the wilderness. He's now writing books, um, kind of living the quiet life of an author. Um, but before he was doing that, he was uh, trapping and killing a wild moose with his bare hands and, and drinking their blood and eating their, their organs. Uh, he was using the skin of a seal as a wetsuit uh, and eating raw zebra meat left over from a lion kill. I mean, the, the man was just made for the wilderness. And so if you, if you want to know, if you, if, if you learn anything about wilderness survival from Bear Grylls or like me, like uh, most normal people, um, <laughs> from Boy Scouts or wherever you learn about wilderness survival skills, you know, one of the most important things you learn about surviving the wilderness is finding a clean water source. You know, if you're in the wilderness and you don't have water, it's guaranteed that you will be miserable. Right? You'll just be thirsting for water. And David, as we'll see in this first verse, draws out this idea of thirsting in the wilderness. Look back at verse 1. Verse, verse 1 of Psalm 63, it says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So David is in a physical wilderness while also speaking of the wilderness that is the state of his soul. He may feel lost or confused or isolated or weary or maybe even desperate. He's in a state of survival and desperation, and he's desperately thirsting for God, leading us to our very first point. Number one, thirsting in the wilderness. Before we can get to the hopeful expectation, it's all over this psalm, uh, we first have to deal with verse 1. You know, just, just listen to this language again. As he speaks about his desperation for God in the wilderness, he says, You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul, it's fit thirst for you. My flesh faints for you. We see that there's a desperation and a longing for God that, that he has in the wilderness that he may not have had, uh, he may not have experienced if, if he was sitting in the comfort of his kingdom. Now, I don't know if this is true for you. Maybe, maybe I'm a little crazy, but, um, you know, the times when, I, when, I, when it seems like I'm most desperate for God, the times that I can relate best to verse 1 are often in season like the wilderness when it seems dry and weary where there is no water. But yet in those exact same seasons of life, almost every time it seems if God shows up in a miraculous way, I've seen God be so faithful time and time and time again. And so coming out of a year like 2020, that for so many, I know that has felt like a dry and weary land, that has felt like a great wilderness, I can't help but have a hopeful expectation knowing that uh, we are in a season when people are thirsting, looking for help, looking for answers. And maybe that's you today. Maybe your life has felt like a wilderness for a season. We all go through these seasons of life, both big and small. Yes, there's major life circumstances that can seem like a wilderness journey, like going through a, a divorce or a long battle with cancer or maybe uh, some sort of persecution that many Christians around the world experience. But uh, those are all hard and tragic. But let's not forget the wilderness of just of loneliness or financial hardship or feeling a, a feeling of wandering or just a lack of direction. You know, we could go on and on and on that often about these that we often just kind of push past, but may we never forget that we have an incredible hope that speaks into every single difficult situation. But let's be clear here, no matter, no matter the wilderness, there, there's, there's nothing fun about the wilderness. 
I don't, I don't know many people <laughs> that get like yippy skippy to go into the wilderness without food and water uh, to go and be weary. Um, it's like, hey, I've got an idea. Uh, let's go out into the desert um, in the middle of the summer, get dropped off without any food and water for a few days, and let's just, let's just see what happens. It'll, it'll be great, right? The only people that do that type of stuff are YouTubers trying to make money uh, because they know crazy people like me will actually go and watch it. You know, it's not a normal thing, though, just to do for fun. Um, but that being said, throughout the Bible and throughout history, God has deemed it necessary to do the miraculous both in the wilderness and coming out of the wilderness. You know, many of the great revivals in history come after some of the darkest days in history. This is just how God works. And so, brothers and sisters, may we not forsake the wilderness, but be eager and expectant, crying out to God with an intense thirst and longing for God to meet us in the wilderness. You know, when I, when I look back on this past year with all that, you know, I hoped and dreamed for, we, we hoped and dreamed for, for God to do, I can't help but, be, but to be thankful that God found it necessary to grow uh, me in ways that I never dreamed possible, to grow me like a childlike faith, right, and, and learning uh, greater endurance and dependence, you know, I can say without hesitation that he's done far more than I could ever ask or imagine. I really mean that. Um, but before I get ahead of myself, but I, what I don't want us to miss is that this verse is not just for when life is crazy. This is also for the everyday mundane life. This should be our daily heart posture as we come before the Lord. This should be our heart posture just as we gather here in worship with God's people. You're realizing our need for God, being desperate and dependent, this is not a place of weakness, but rather this is a place of incredible power. One of my life verses that has so greatly shaped me that we will look at more this spring is 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God's power is made perfect in weakness. This needs to be, and it must be, a regular and a daily heart posture that we have before the Lord. You know, before we come uh, before the Lord, we need to recognize our weakness and our incredible need for God. And so if we aren't thirsting for God, it's really hard. If we're not thirsting for God, it's really hard to be satisfied with him as the living water that daily satisfies our souls. Listen, if our souls do not thirst for God, God will never quench our souls because we'll always find something else as a false and empty substitute. And so we must ask, how do we come to God, right? Daily thirsting for him. Well, we have to daily recognize our need for him. You know, we need to confess our apathy towards him. We need to confess out our sin to him, our fears, our worries, our struggles, our idols to him. You know, when we first acknowledge and realize our brokenness to God, it puts us in a place of dependence, of needing God to restore our brokenness. And this should be a daily recurring thing in our life. Because if we want to get to a place of expectant and hopeful worship that we find in the rest of this psalm, we need to first come to God thirsting for him, as we see in verse 1. And sometimes, by God's grace, he places us in the wilderness to see, see this through hard life experiences. But other times, when life seems great or maybe even boring and mundane, we need to come to the Lord in this same state. But may I remind you, we do not stay here. The God in the gospel, does not, he does not leave us in verse 1 in a place of thirsting and longing without quenching our souls. No, our God who restores takes us from verse 1 and he takes us to verse 2. 
bringing us to delighting in the Lord in the wilderness and out of the wilderness. Because as we see, starting in verse 2, David's heart begins to turn. He says, starting in verse 2, he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your, in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you, praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Showing us our very next point, it's worship in the wilderness. You know, as I've said, the wildernesses of life, uh, they come in all shapes and sizes. You know, they come in years, they come in seasons, they come in hours, they come in minutes, and they come in days. Uh, we may have parts of our life that have felt like a wilderness for years and years, while at the exact same time, be exuding with joy in thanksgiving with other parts of our life. This is just the way life works. You know, the little years of parenting uh, can, can be all over the place with both joyful and a challenge all at the same time. Every school semester is filled with worries and also new opportunities and new, uh, new excitements. Every workday can be filled with both stress and satisfaction. I did say can be. I, I get it. You know, it is work at times. It can be not always satisfying. But doing ministry, you know, even doing ministry, right? sharing our faith. Discipling others is full of uh, hardship and angst and also filled with so much delight all at the same time. And what I love about Psalm 63 is that this psalm highlights, it highlights an all of life mentality. In these verses we just read, David, uh, David says in verse 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. As if David has a vision seeing the Lord. He said, I looked upon you. As if he saw God. So here is David in the wilderness. He's thirsting for God. And what does he do in his dry and weary land? Well, he, he looks to God. He looks to, to, to behold God's power and glory. He doesn't meditate on everything around him. No, he looks to God and he looks to his grandeur and his greatness. And this is such an important thing for us to remember. In every season, we must look to God. Why? Because as David says in verse 3, his steadfast love is better than life. No matter the season, God's love, it doesn't waver and it does not change. And you know what's crazy to me? Is that David's understanding of God's steadfast love, it came from a time in biblical history when God was being carried around in the Ark of the Covenant. God, it was, just, God was housed and he was kept, uh, carried around in just a really nice fancy box. I mean, this is what it was, you know. Uh, but yet, he's, he still knew and experienced and trusted God's incredible faithfulness. David longed. David longed to see the face of God, the smile of God, but he couldn't. But, but us today, we know something far better and far more than what David knew. And if you're not a Christian here today, or, or you're just trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ, pay attention. Right? Hear the truth of God's word today because what God's word shows us is that we couldn't be with God or see God because of our brokenness and sin. Right? We have a, we, because of our sin, we're caused to thirst for God, leaving us in a dry and weary land without hope, without water, 
Our sin keeps us separated from God, the God that can quench our thirst. But yet in God's incredible grace and mercy, God came down to earth in the form of a person named Jesus Christ to live among his people and to be our living water for us to come and to drink from and to display his steadfast love to all of humanity as an endless fountain of grace and mercy. Jesus lived and walked this earth. He did it without sin. And in his perfect love, Jesus went to the cross to display his love to the world. And by, and by Jesus dying on the cross, a criminal's death, by Jesus dying and bleeding, a slow, a slow, torturous death, by staying on the cross, Jesus showed his steadfast love. He showed his quenching eternal love because through his death, Jesus made a way. He made a way for you and for me to fully know and experience everything that we see David envision in this psalm. Because when we believe in Jesus, believing that Jesus died and rose from the dead, our sin is taken away and we can be close with God and experience his, his endless fountain of love and mercy uh, that eternally quenches our souls. And instead of God dwelling in a fancy box, God comes in and lives inside of our messy, broken hearts, and he redeems them and he restores them. And so we no longer have to go to a sanctuary to behold God's glory, as David mentioned in verse 2, but rather God's glory came to dwell among us and to live inside of us. And so when we read the rest of this psalm, if we believe in Jesus, everything in this psalm is granted to us. We get all of this every day. Every waking hour in our times of grief, of great grief in the wilderness, and in our times of great rejoicing out of a great harvest. And because of the gospel, we have access to the living water at all times and at all seasons. David had to have a vision about God while going to a sanctuary. But, but guess what? We right now and at all times, no matter where we are, if, if, we get it. We get it at all times. And so if you do not believe in Jesus, I want you to pay attention to all of the benefits in this psalm that we get by trusting in Jesus in the cross, by trusting in Jesus in the gospel, and how God meets us in the wilderness, and how God gives us an incredible hope and care with a quenching steadfast love. As that said, um, there, there are two themes that I want to point out. It kind of runs simultaneously. In these seven verses, in verses two through eight, you know, on one side, from David's perspective, from a human perspective, he's showing an expectant worship with his whole life. You know, he realizes he's in the wilderness, but he's crying out, almost commanding himself to worship the Lord with his entire life. And in just a minute, in just a minute, I'll highlight the language that's connected to his body and his mind. But before we get there, on the other side. David is crying out to God and worshiping him. He's exalting God with all of his emotion. David is in the wilderness worshiping God. And he's worshiping in the wilderness. And he's also worshiping his way out of the wilderness. With everything that is going on around him, David chooses to focus all of his energy and emotion on the greatness of God. Just look at the language he's referencing about his body and his emotion. Notice what he says. Uh, is outwardly working, uh, is, is working out through him. There's an outward expression of what he inwardly believes. In verse three, he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, 
my lips will praise you. Look at verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. And then in verse 5, it says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Soul here is both mind and heart. It's a word that kind of connects them together. And so David is connecting his worship to an experience. What he knows to be true in his mind is affecting his outward emotion, his outward life. His knowledge of God, it's stirring his heart and soul, and it's outwardly raising his affections to God. You know, there's so many ways we worship, and these are just a few of the many ways David responds in worship. And then verses 6 through 8. Right, he, he, connects, he connects it all to a real-life experience of when, he is in, uh, when he's in bed. Right? Quite possibly, maybe he can't sleep, we don't know. Um, but some have said maybe that's the case. Look what he says in verses 6 through 8. Uh, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Verse 6, he says, again, he said, when I remember you upon my bed. And so here's David in the wilderness in a dry and weary land, quite possibly losing sleep over what's happening around him, and he worships his way into a trusting delight of God. I mean, over and over again, he commands himself saying, he will. I mean, just listen to all the commands he gives himself in those few verses. He says, my lips will praise you. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. So here is David in a dry and weary land, in a wilderness, experiencing some sort of anguish, and he commands himself into worship with his entire life, with his whole body and soul. You know, I just, I just imagine David crying out to God and just kind of banging his fist on the table. That which he knows to be true in his head about God until he believes it in his heart and it works outside of himself. I get it. Right? We don't always feel like worshiping. I'm the exact same way. There are many days, uh, there are days, many of them, when I kind of stumble out of bed, grab my cup of coffee, uh, and just sit there and stare at it. I right? just stare at God's word. Because if I'm honest, I just, there's times when I don't want to read it. Because for whatever reason, my heart and affections are ice cold. So I open my Bible and I read it anyways. And many times as I read God's word, my heart softens to the Lord. My affections for the Lord are stirred. But sometimes, if I'm honest, sometimes they're just not. And so in those moments, the best thing for me to do is to pray and to confess to the Lord, God, I don't want to read your word, but God, I know I need it. And oftentimes, God begins to soften my heart. And what I found to be true throughout my life is that the more I'm in God's word, the more I crave God's word. And on the flip side, the less I'm in God's word, the less that I crave his word, the less that I thirst for his word. Because our hearts, they so easily thirst for other things. But what I know to be so true from my own personal experience and from so many others is that we all thirst for God, but we try to quench that thirst with things like money or sex or success or popularity or approval or alcohol or drugs or entertainment or comfort. I mean, we could go on and on and on. But the only thing that will quench the thirst and longing in our hearts is God. It's Jesus Christ. 
And this is why verse 1 of this psalm is so important. Remember, he cries out to God and says, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. There's an earnestness. There's an eagerness and a fervent expectation that comes with worshiping God. Like, we need to expect to meet God when we come to worship him here together. Here. We need to come to expect it. When we go to God in prayer, when we spend time in his word, when we gather in our groups, may we come expectantly and eager, expecting to be surprised by God. For God to fill our hearts with joy and gladness. When we come to God, thirsting for God in the wilderness, when life seems dry and weary, the only way our thirst in the wilderness is quenched is by worship of Jesus Christ. Just like David, our thirst in the wilderness is quenched by worshiping God. Listen, I I don't know where you are today, but if if your heart seems dry uh, and dull towards God as if you were in a desert or a wilderness, I want to call you to earnestly just bang your fist on the table and command your heart to worship to worship your way out of the wilderness. Whether you feel like it or not, if your heart feels ice cold, if, just let God come in and melt your heart. By gazing and beholding his power and his glory, by looking to the incredible wonder and steadfast love of God, by looking and reflecting on God's love that was portrayed at the cross. I want to to call you to command your heart to sing with joyful lips what you know to be true. Command your heart to sing joyfully because of the gospel that God has saved you, that God has redeemed you. He's bought you with a price and made you his child to love forever, to quench your thirsty soul forever. Maybe you're here and your life doesn't seem dull and boring. Maybe your life actually seems chaotic and crazy. Maybe you're like David uh, was in this psalm and your life seems like a wilderness. I want to call you to do the exact same thing. To worship the Lord in the wilderness. And worship your way out of the wilderness. And in these seasons, don't miss, don't miss the sweetness of God as he meets you in those special moments when you're thirsting and fainting and longing for God. Just let the shadow of God's love and care pour over you. Let him satisfy you as with fat and rich food, as he says in verse 5. You know, I, love that, I love that David says that. You know, I kind of get what he's putting down here. Because, well, I love a good fatty T-bone steak. Medium rare, you know, bast and salt and butter, seared to perfection. <laughs> uh, so good, you don't need A1, but if you're like my wife, you want the A1 anyways, because that's really good too. Um, and then after all the kids go to bed, turn on the oven, you know, put on some nice warm chocolate chip cookies, uh, mixed in with my nice cookie two-step ice cream. Y'all know me too well. Maybe even mixed with some peanut butter. All right, I'm sorry if that messes it up, but I love it. Peanut butter, maybe even whipped cream if it's there. If we have a cherry, I'll even put a cherry on top, you know. We don't have many. That doesn't happen often, but, you know, just kind of sit down and just delight in it. All right, just fully, fully satisfied. You know, I love that picture because that's what David paints for us. You know, showing that that's what God wants for us. He wants to be delighted in and be satisfied in. And he says, as with fat and rich food. And so before we get to our last point today, one of the many prayers I have for our church is that we would be a church that is marked by a fervent expectation that longs to earnestly worship the Lord, that thirsts for God, that is dependent on God. 
It's so easy to get caught up in routine and duty, which are good things. Right? Discipline and duty are, are in the Christian life. They're, 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 they're good for us. We need them. But may we not lose the element of delight and surprise in worship that comes when we thirst for God. So that said, let's look at our last few verses. Look at verses 9, 9 through 11. David says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. And so here, here, is, here, here David is showing a confidence in God to defeat his enemies that are after him. He knows uh, that justice here is in God's hands and that ultimately God will deliver him from his enemies. That God will provide, number three, deliverance out of the wilderness. And that once David is delivered, he will rejoice in the Lord. And so as we get in these last few minutes of our time today, you know, looking at these last few verses... If I'm honest with you today, which I, I'm always honest with you, but uh, I've struggled with, it, with verses 9 and 10 this week. Because out of David's worship of God in verses 2 through 8, uh, we'd expect a, a hopeful expectation, but maybe not like what we see happen in verses 9 and 10. It, honestly, it seems as if David is just angry, which is not what we'd expect here. Just listen to this language again. He says in verse 9, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. Right? That's not like a happy chipper thing. you know. That's, that's pretty dark. And then look at verse 10. It says, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, which is like food for carnage. Right? After a battle, all the animals come in and just eat it up. These are not pretty pictures that we think of as, as a response out of worship or out of delighting in God and his greatness. And I've been uh, just kind of disappointed this week because not many commentaries or resources or scholars or any other pastors have really addressed it. And so I've had to kind of wrestle with this more on my own, uh, which is, you know, but it's, so here's David crying for justice and vengeance, and he's angered right out of his worship of God, or maybe as he's worshiping God. It's like, man, this is not how I thought this would end. It just kind of took a hard turn. It's like, what do we do with this? And if you've ever been angry, maybe you get it. Like I said, I struggled with this all week until Thursday when I was uh, angry. I was just being transparent here. You know, just watching videos of uh, people barrel over police officers and barricades, bust, burst through windows of the Capitol Hill while flying flags with crosses on them and doing it all in the name of Jesus. Saying I was angered was an understatement. Um, I was disgusted. But knowing I had to finish the sermon and finish these last few verses, I need to get back to work and and my frustration and anger, uh, which typically isn't the best place to be when you have to write a sermon. Uh, but as soon as I sat down looking at these verses, it's like God kind of opened my eyes uh, and made it and helped make it more sense. Because as we dig into this a little bit more, I think we can see how it connects. Notice the contrast here in verse 9. We see uh, who the... We see who these thoughts of justice and vengeance are for. He says, those who seek to destroy my life. And then he gives... Uh, the things that shall happen. He says, they shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword and be given as a portion for jackals. Uh, and we know from following the story of King David, in 2 Samuel 18, this actually happened. 
You know, I'd encourage you to go back and read the entire story. It was a, it was a massive battle and justice was served to Absalom and to all his people. Um, although it was not how, how David envisioned it, but th- we then see God delivered David. He, he delivered David out of the wilderness and he restored him as king. But yet what we also know after Absalom's death in 2 Samuel 18, David still cries out in pain and agony saying, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And y'all, this is where it kind of started to make sense for me. Because full justice was served, yet it did not fully satisfy. David was still greatly grieved. Why? Because of what he says in verse 11. He says, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David knows that in all seasons, God is the only thing that will fully satisfy him. In all seasons, his rejoicing is in God. We can worship and rejoice in the Lord. We can worship Jesus Christ in all seasons with a hopeful expectation, even in our messy, evil world where it seems like evil prevails. Why? Because the power of Jesus Christ, because of the power of the cross of Christ and the power of the spirit that lives within us, the power of God that no longer dwells in a pretty box, but dwells in messy, broken hearts, comes in and fuels those broken hearts to rejoice in the Lord. When our wilderness and broken world disappoints us, when it seems like we're living in a valley of dry bones, like we see in the book of Ezekiel, God loves to come in and breathe life and hope and flourishing. Why? Because this is what God does. God loves to come in uh, and restore. God is a God who restores. This is so good for us. This is so good for the brokenhearted. Listen. Because of the gospel, every single day, we have the incredible hope to come expectantly to God, expecting to be surprised by God and to worship God in our wilderness and dry dry land and to worship God out of our wilderness to find full deliverance in the gospel. It's there. We need to seek it, earnestly seek it, as David says, and get this. We see throughout God's word that God delights in bringing springs of living water into dry lands of the desert. God loves to bring living water to the thirsty, but what we see is that sometimes God comes into the desert. He comes into the wilderness with slow, painful tears, caring for us as we weep with him, quenching our thirsty souls with his his slow and steady tears. While other times... God comes in like a mighty rushing river, overflowing with an abundance of joy and life. But in both seasons, God is always faithful to bring water, to bring water that quenches the souls that long for God. Yo, I have committed myself to continually beg God for the abundant, mighty rushing river that is found in God to find full delight in the Lord with full satisfaction while also being so thankful for God to provide water through painful tears. Because in both seasons, church, God is so faithful. If you don't know this, God, that quenches our souls. If you don't know him, I pray that you would. I pray that you would find Jesus Christ today. Because in Jesus Christ, through the good news of Jesus, uh, we can find the living water that quenches our souls. Would you, would you, if that's you, would you talk to someone today? If not, brothers and sisters, New City Church, listen, we, we serve a God 
that has come to bring life and worship into the wilderness and to deliver us out of the wilderness. And I hope that today you've seen that God loves to bring water to thirsty souls and to pick up the faint-hearted, showing us that it's only the Lord who will fully satisfy us, satisfy our souls in the wilderness. Let's pray. God, we need you. God, you're our living water that will satisfy our souls. Father, in a dry and weary land, Father, you bring us living water. Father, would we, would we know that? Would we believe in that? Would we earnestly seek it? Father, we need you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.